Welcome to Stay Grounded with your host, me, Raj Jana. I'm the founder of Java Press Coffee Company, and my life changed after my mentor died with three months left until retirement. That experience inspired me to start a personal journey to discover how we can all live a purpose-driven and meaningful life starting today. I interview everyone from best-selling authors and business moguls to extreme athletes and monks to discuss happiness, success, and fulfillment to uncover powerful takeaways that empower you to stay grounded and make passionate living a reality. To access post-podcast discussions, insights, and further resources, visit rajjana.com forward slash stay grounded. So thanks for joining me today. Now, let's get to grinding. Yo, yo, welcome to episode 46 of the Stay Grounded podcast. Super excited to be with you all today, introducing uh, this week's guest, Mr. Ken Blackman. So Ken is a sex and relationship expert who's worked with hundreds of couples from all over the world, from San Francisco to Paris to Sydney, and trained thousands of students in his workshops on sex, intimacy, and connection. So uh, Ken has a really interesting background. He started off as a software engineer in 1998, and a lot of the stuff that he teaches couples were actually things that he had to practice just building within himself. So building the emotional intelligence and a healthy relationship with himself and the emotions of other people really was the starting point of this now career that he's built and this legacy that he's built just helping people from all over the world. And so I love this conversation with Ken, one, because we don't really bring a lot of relationship experts on board. One thing I love about the Stay Grounded podcast is that really we're exploring different avenues in life so that we can explore ways to create a more fulfilling life. And one thing that Ken and I talked a lot about was really building relationships and meaningful relationships and how to go about doing that when you haven't done it in the past, whether it's because of layers of insecurity or a fear of being vulnerable, or even how to navigate some of the challenges that come from being open with yourself and others. Ken and I go really down the rabbit hole in exploring that side of life because I've always felt, and after this episode, I truly do believe that your life is a product of your relationships and the better quality relationships you have in your life, the more meaningful and fulfilling your life actually is. Uh, we're all craving connection. We're all craving something deeper with human beings and ourselves. And sometimes looking into the eyes of someone else and really building an authentic relationship can actually be the gateway that allows you to understand who you really are in life. And so I loved this episode so much because we looked at the concept of happiness, meaning, purpose, fulfillment through the lens of relationships and how to go about creating quality relationships in your life. And I really loved getting into the mind of someone like Ken because he's so articulate with the concepts of building meaningful relationships, whether it's partnerships or, or friendships or family, whatever it is, I think that you'll take a lot out of this incredibly enriching conversation with Ken. And so hope you guys enjoy this. Ken has got a fantastic uh, program that he's launching, GourmetLoveLife.com, to help you or help your, your relationships foster on a whole new level. He works with couples from all over the world, and he walks them through how to infuse more meaning, purpose, happiness, fulfillment in your relationship. And so this is something I likely will be taking on myself just because I loved what Ken had to say. So highly recommend Ken and his expertise in this regard. So if you want to learn more about it, head to gourmetlovelife.com. But all in all, this episode was so fruitful and so 
um, eye-opening for me. And I hope you guys experience the same. So uh, before we get started, if you haven't already subscribed us on iTunes, leave us some love. Let me know what you like and don't like. And let's have fun with this, guys. This is really about creating amazing lives and legacies we love. And it all starts with our relationships. So I hope you guys enjoy this amazing interview with the incredible Ken Blackman. Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of the Stay Grounded Podcast. Oh, man, I am here with uh, my friend, Ken. Ken, how you doing? Great. So good to see you and good to talk to your audience. Yeah, man, I'm super excited to have you here. Um, I think, uh, I mean, just the, I was, I was going through your story um, right before the episode, and it got me really excited uh, and curious to ask questions that I uh, I personally need help with in my life. And I think those conversations usually always lead down some really interesting paths. So uh, are you ready, my friend? Great. Let's bring it. All right, homie. Good, good, good. So I already introduced you in the intro to a certain degree, but so I want to start at the beginning. Um, I want to start with sort of, because you're a relationship expert now, um, Mm -hmm. but that's after years of experience. Um, tell me about the first year you got started. Um, so year one, um, how did you get into, uh, wanting to be a relationship expert? What drew you to that? And, 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 and how was it starting out something new when you came from a corporate background? Totally. So to, to back up even slightly before that. So here I am. I'm a, I'm a successful software engineer. I'm in Silicon Valley. I had like nine years at Apple during their peak. So I was successful by most measures, but I was also like a geeky, nerdy software engineer. I, where I was struggling was with my personal life and especially my relationships with women. So I was, I was terrible with women. Like I was a walking encyclopedia of all the ways that you can be bad with the opposite sex. Like I was, <laughs> I was, I was whiny. I was needy. I was intimidated. Like the more positive qualities a woman had, whether she was intelligent, whether she was successful, confident, you know, attractive, the more, the more you know, bomb she was, the more scared and intimidated I was. And if someone, woman penetrated through my, um, all of my barriers and all of my self-doubt and all of my low self-esteem and actually got connection with me, I was terrible as a boyfriend. I was terrible in bed. I will, I, I was depressed. I wasn't that much fun. So I was a mess and I needed help. Yeah. So I went out and I got, I got, some some really phenomenally good training in in what it takes to actually have a healthy intimate connection with another human being you know to have a have a have you know good a good relationship with with women and a lot of the training that i got actually was it was it was interesting because it started in the bedroom like taking the dynamics that take place in the bedroom and using that as a mirror or a microcosm for how your relationship is as a whole. So there was this period of time where I was, I was better in the bedroom than I was at just having a plain old conversation with a woman. But what I did learn 
like what I, what, what I experienced was that women were willing to tell me the truth and share themselves with me and be honest with me in a way that a lot of guys don't experience. And so because I was, I was a sponge and just learned and listened, like something shifted within me. And suddenly I became capable of being the man who was capable of having like a, a healthy relationship that included intimacy and connection and, and, you know, all those things. And it changed me so much that I was like, this is, this is the work I want to do. I want other people to have the kind of transformation that I have. And I want other people to have really not just good relationships, but great relationships, relationships that get better year after year after year. And I just like within a year, I quit my job and I, this was, I trained with my mentors and, 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 um, got good at it and developed my own style of coaching, my own style of working with couples. That was 20 years ago. And that's what I've been doing ever since. And it's been, I've never looked back. Like my coaching sessions with my couples are the highlight of my day. Mm, I love that, man. Thanks for, uh, thanks for, thanks for that, uh, cliff note version of your story. Yeah. I want to go back uh, deeper into certain things you mentioned. Okay. So you mentioned that, uh, a lot of the things that were happening in the bedroom were actually a microcosm for what happens in relationships. Yeah. Uh, what role does self-awareness play in that concept? Because, you know, I've always felt like, I mean, from that standpoint, you're saying that, uh, you're really comfortable behind the sheets, but when you get into the open, all of a sudden you feel judged or, 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 or it's like, it's, 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 it's almost like it goes hand in hand. So how does self-awareness play a role in just your own emotional health? Um, and then how does that emotional health bleed into, um, a successful relationship, whether it's a friend or romantic? Totally. And there's a couple pieces in there. So I want to tease them out and talk about each one. One of them is self-awareness, meaning, Am I aware of what I'm thinking and feeling? Am I aware of the emotions that I'm having? I want to get into that a little bit later in the call if, we, if it goes in that direction. But then the second piece is just how I feel about myself. So you, you've met me. We've been in person. I'm not tall. I'm five feet zero. Like I'm five feet tall. Uh, I never considered myself particularly handsome. I'm not athletic. I certainly wasn't like outgoing or charming. I mean, I think I am now, but you know, <laughs> back then I, I, I was shy. I was introverted. I wasn't socially, I was kind of socially inept. So I had all these things going, going against me. And I thought I was, my belief was that I was hopeless. Like it, I, I am, I'm a hopeless case for having a good relationship with a woman. And what I learned was that the only thing that mattered was how I felt about myself. So once I started to make changes that had that changed how I felt about me so that I felt good about myself, all of a sudden women treated me completely different. And they were all, they had always been there. They had always been interested in me in ways that I was too blind because of my low self-esteem to, to be aware of. So self-awareness in the sense of how do I, what am I, how do I feel about myself what am I doing to feel good about myself? And it's not just a switch. Like, it's not just, oh, you decide to feel good about yourself. You have to do things that you feel good about. You have to like, you know. What were some things once, you did? Um, so I, uh, I, I took chances 
And I allowed myself to succeed or fail. I took chances in, in the social realm, but I also took chances in, in business. Like every time I did something scary, it didn't matter whether it was a great success or a failure. I, I felt better about myself for having gone for it. So that's one. Another is just to kind of get to the bedrock of why I placed so much emphasis on how women feel about me and kind of unravel that. Another is um, like all the things like, am I living from integrity? Now that's a word, you know, that's a word that's like, am I doing what I believe is the right thing? Right. Not because someone's watching me or someone's not watching me, but because when I do the right thing, I changes how I feel about myself. And that turns out to be super important. So let me ask you something. It sounds like yeah. all three of those things wrap up into a heightened sense of self-awareness, which you also translate over to a higher sense of self-belief. Do you mm-hmm. think self-awareness and self-belief are the same thing? Well, kind of going back to where we started. So there's this piece around, I'll use the word self-esteem, which is how I feel about myself. Yeah. And then self-awareness, another meaning of self-awareness is, am I aware of my emotions? So, for example, uh, if I'm angry and I don't know that I'm angry, and those are two very different things. This is There's research about this. Having a feeling, having an emotion, and feeling that emotion, being aware that you have, you're feeling that emotion, literally uses two separate regions of your brain. Like they actually put someone in an MRI and when you're consciously aware that you're having an emotion and you give yourself permission to feel that emotion, like I'm angry. I'm so before I do anything, I'm not, I'm going to be aware that I'm angry. I'm going to feel angry. And then uh, when you do that, that puts you in a very different state. So that is another form of self-awareness that is very, very important to me and very, very important in relationships. But yeah, so I guess that when you feel those emotions or when you allow yourself to feel those emotions, you become more comfortable with your sense of self, right? So then that leads to higher self-esteem. They do feed into each other. All these different pieces do feed into each other and they, they definitely, yeah, for sure. So I want to go back to uh, the first uh, portion you mentioned with how you made yourself feel better was facing fear and doing things that you didn't know how to do. Why do you think um, in a tangible sense, why do you think that concept allowed you to feel better about yourself? Is it because you started understanding more about who you were or was it because it was almost like a game you were playing with yourself? In what way did that experience allow you to sort of grow into the man you are today? It's a great, great question. And I would say the answer for me was that it took me out of the realm of feeling powerlessness or powerless. So it wasn't a matter of, as someone who, like my one of my primary emotions is fear. Someone else, it might be anger, you know, but for me, it was fear. So um, I... It wasn't that I had to do something to not be scared. Like what it was, was to feel fear and not have that be the driver behind my actions. And so all of a sudden my actions became liberated and free 
and I could do the thing that I felt called to do without having this paralyzing uh, fear stopping me. And so part of part of how it changed my self-awareness was just decoupling those two so that, yes, I'm, I'm scared. Yes, I'm conscious, consciously aware that I'm feeling scared. Yes, it's having a physical effect in my body. I'm aware that my heart is racing. I'm aware that, you know, all these things are happening. And I'm going to do the thing that I, that I say that I want to do. And all of a sudden, afterwards, I'm like, I feel liberated. I feel free. I feel capable. Uh, I'm proud of myself for having done, done what, I, what I did. And all of a sudden, it, it's kind of de- it's decoupled from the emotion that has me trapped. And it's also decoupled from the result. I'm not judging myself based on what happened. I'm judging my based on how I was in the situation. So all those things changed my self-awareness. I, um, I've got this theory. I want to run it by you because I think I don't know if there's anyone more qualified to get this, uh, to run this by. But I have this fear or this theory that when you face fears that are rooted in some sort of social acceptance or judgment, no matter how small they are, when you face fears that are based in those arenas versus like, let's say a fear of spiders or a fear, like let's say you're around some sort of snake or something and you're fearing survival. Mm -hmm. When you almost take on those other social based fears and then you conquer them, that's what accelerates uh, your, um, almost like your quality of life because Mm -hmm. it's like proactively facing fears as opposed to reactively, which is survival mode. I totally agree. I totally agree. And I would go even a step further and say, we're, when we're scared about how the other person is going to react or when we're scared about where the other person where, or the group is going to take, take things like you feel powerless when you face that fear, when you confront that fear, you're in the driver's seat. So mm-hmm. let's say, you know, I'm, I, let's say I'm coaching someone uh, around their fear about asking someone for a date or, you know, like, does she like me? Does she, is she into me? Well, what I do is I invite him to be, to have it be that his him being into her is sufficient. Like I put him in the driver's seat, like have him feel, let her feel how he's into her. So there's this switch from being powerless to actually being the one who takes it in a good direction. So when you confront your social fears, you're the leader of the group and you can, you're taking the group in a good direction. You're taking them in, in the direction of more closeness or more fun or whatever it is. Right. When people feel powerless in social situations, how do you turn that around to start having a good time? Or how do you turn that around to, to almost like change the story or the narrative you're telling yourself in that, in that very moment? I have this, I have this theory that I work from that everyone, we all have one thing in common and it takes a thousand different forms, but we're all human beings and we all crave connection with other human beings like underneath it all all the fun things we do all the you know like if you're taking someone to a restaurant whether you're taking your spouse on a vac on a vacation whatever it is you're doing those are just settings for two people to experience the basic human need of connection so um 
one way right now in the moment that you can experience connection with another human being, no matter what, is to be honest and vulnerable and candid and say the thing that, like, say the elephant in the room. If you're so feeling if you're feeling socially awkward, say, oh, my God, I feel, isn't this awkward? Like, just name the thing that's happening. Name the elephant in the room. Name the thing you're feeling. And what happens is you, the scary part is that you're dismantling your facade that you so carefully built that you're hoping they're going to like. You're dismantling that. You're abandoning it. That's scary. But what you're bringing instead is... Uh, a humanity that has them let go of their facade for just a minute. And right now you're two human beings sitting in this crazy world and having a moment of like, isn't this, isn't this funny? Isn't this crazy? Isn't this, you know, Ken, let me ask you something on that note though. Uh, Cause I can personally attest at some point in my life, I would have called that absolutely terrifying. And if you would have told me as somebody, as a friend, like, Hey, Raj, to get over your fear, go do this. I would have honestly been like, you know what, man, I actually know. So let me take it one step back. Is there a way for us to experience that small social win of being accepted without actually being vulnerable or is vulnerability the absolute must for connection? That's a good question. You know, I know people who have created such an amazingly compelling slick facade. You can do it. I'm not going to say you can't do that. Do that. Like you can't create such a facade that everyone loves you and you're getting the the appearance of being loved. You're getting the the something that lo- looks or resembles like like connection. But I know a lot of people who have succeeded at that. They've actually succeeded and they're not, there's something missing. So um, I think, I think it's absolutely necessary that people at some point, if you're going to, if you want connection at some point, you're going to have to be real with someone. You're going to have to be vulnerable with them. Yeah. Like your facade will only get you in the door. Gotcha. Well, I think getting, and I think that's, but, you know, when I think about, you know, the whole point of of what I'm trying to ask is how do we use social relationships to build or to live a more fulfilling life? Right. Mm -hmm. So when I think about a fulfilling life for me, it's being able to go out, being comfortable in my own skin, being able to experience life through a lens that I find very satisfying. And at times that isn't me being super vulnerable. That, that might be me being socially liked. That might be me going out there and having a facade. Um, and so when I think about, but that, that goes back to the original conversation, which is around emotional intelligence. So. Yeah. I, yeah. Oh, I don't mean that you should be socially awkward and struggling and vulnerable vulnerably sharing yourself all the time. Yeah. No, no. They're at a certain point, you know, it becomes easier to just simply have connection and it feels good or to simply have be out having a good time. And it's, and it's great. And not all, not all of my friendships or not all of my intimate, you know, not all of my friendships are deep. Not all of them are based on like pouring my heart out. Right. Like some of them are just like, we both like, 
we both like a certain genre of movie, so we go see that movie together. Or yeah. we both like going skating, and so we skate together, or whatever that is, yeah. right? So, yeah. yeah. No, 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 absolutely. Okay. Um, so going back again to, uh, I'm getting to the core, emotional intelligence, uh, right. which is, I think, the glue that holds all of this together, whether it's self-esteem, self-awareness, all of these concepts, they are versions of emotional intelligence. So mm-hmm. how does, um, how have you built emotional intelligence in your own life? Or how have you taken on the challenge of developing emotional intelligence in your own life? And how has, um, how has that skill served you? Yeah, beautiful. So I developed a bunch of skills that I now in retrospect in hindsight recognize there's this word that's in popular culture now called emotional intelligence. And it's a, it's a constellation of skills that are in the emotional realm rather than in the intellectual realm. Um, But I developed them before, like it wasn't like it was taught to me that using that languaging, but basically it's uh being aware of your emotions, being aware that you're feeling something, giving yourself permission to feel that thing, uh, distinguishing between the emotion, like, am I using my emotion to be, to harm another human being? Am I being, like, there's a difference between being angry versus being uh, vindictive. There's a difference, uh, right? So, so like, having a healthy relationship to your emotions, which doesn't mean you suppress them. It means that there are, you can be a passionate human being. Right. Uh, then being aware of other people's emotions, being able to experience another person's emotions, like, you know, it's a shared, a shared experience. Um, uh, being able to handle another human being's emotions. So, your triggers over there are not triggering my triggers over here, right? We're not in a spiral of emotional ping pong where I say something that triggers you or activates you. And then you say something that activates me and all of a sudden it's escalating and, and amplifying like an emotional echo chamber, like the skill of de-escalating that so that they can have their feelings. I can have my feelings and, and they're separate. So those are some of the examples how does emotional intelligence help you live a fulfilling life? Well, I think it's the basis of ongoing connection. So you can have connection with one human being one time, but if you want ongoing connections, you're going to have feelings. There you go. And, and you have to be able to, to know how to, how to handle those feelings. Like, here's how I think of it. There's a bunch of experiences that we can have in the world. Like, the best downhill ski slope, the best gourmet meal at the best, you know, Michelin starred restaurant, right? The most amazing vacation. There's so much we can experience alone by ourselves. You can have a, you can have a wedding without a broom, a groom or a bride. Now that's a thing. You can have a, you can have a, a, a honeymoon alone. There's very little that you can't do alone. So all that leaves is, the few things that we have to have another human being, we have to have another human being in order to experience. That is my definition of connection. And in there is like, the only reason we do that is to feel something. And so you're going to have emotions. 
you're going to have feelings. That's why we're drawn. That's why we're drawn to each other. That's why we want to be with another human being instead of living our lives alone is to have feelings, to have connection. What about, what about positive feelings makes them so enticing? I don't know that I can answer that. Can you, can you phrase the question a different way? Cause it's like, when I think about like, why are we drawn to that level of connection? Um, is like, well, like what about the human experience makes intimate connection so important? You know, I don't know that there's an answer that goes beyond the fact that we're social creatures were yeah. built to be social. I'll say this. So uh, there's our frontal cortex. That's where we do our heavy thinking, abstract thought, mathematics, like deep concepts, like, you know, politics and stuff like that. Then down here is our reptilian brain that handles physiology. It keeps our heart pumping. It's like fight or flight is down there, like basic physiological things that you need to be alive. And in between those two is the emotional, where our emotions live. So if you take a gecko, right, like a, a, a lizard, they know how to move towards the right temperature. They move away from something that's too hot or too cold. They know how to move towards food. They know how to move away from danger. They know how to move away from, from pain. But they don't have emotions, right? They don't, they don't care if they don't grieve if their one of their children dies they don't grieve if their spouse dies they just don't have those kinds of emotions so what we know is that as animals became more intelligent there was an advantage to working in groups to be social and emotions are a form of communication so the reason I feel scared and, you know, the reason I feel scared is that's a communication to the people around me that some, mm -hmm. I've noticed something going on. They also will feel scared because like ah, something's going on. So emotions are a form of communication. That's why they're kind of contagious. If I'm happy and calm, the people around me will be happy and calm because that's a, that's a, a survival skill. So if you start to think about the emotions that we have as a form of communication, a form of two-way communication, and babies who aren't given, like they're given food, they're given heat, you know, they're given the right temperature, but they're not given love, they get sick and they die. It is a basic human need to have to experience the nutrient of connection with another human being. That is a beautifully way to beautiful way to put it. Um, yeah. I cannot agree with you more. Now, I want to talk to you about that because it sounds like emotions do more of the talking than words themselves. Yeah. Um, so, how does body language and presence and um, you know concepts that are intangible more than tangible, like something someone says? play a role in the strength of communication or the strength of a relationship you might make with another human being? Yeah. So I'm going to generalize. I'm going to talk about men versus women, but I want all the people who are listening to know this. I know these are generalizations. I know they're not universal. So just go with me on this so that I can make the point. 
in general, in our society, men are uh, encouraged and rewarded for living in their cortex, their intellectual. And in fact, if you go back to the 1950s, the model where he's the provider, he's the protector, and she's the nurturer and all that stuff. One of the things you see in those television shows from the 50s is he's reasonable, he's rational in a way that she's not, right? Those are qualities that he's that he's praised for. So we're good at being producers, we're good at like those kinds of things, right? And um, so we're not very well versed, societally speaking, in in the emotional the emotional component. And so when I'm working with guys, what I get them, they at some point they have to see the reason why they want to be in a relationship is not is is emotional. The it is the thing that they actually want. They may put her in charge of being the emotional side because he doesn't know how to be in, in touch with his own emotional side. But really what he's hungry for, the thing she represents, is a purely emotional thing. And the more he's able to own that, like the more free he is to actually get the nutrients that he's actually there to get. So as long as he's there in the relationship and he's pretending or telling himself that, oh, all I need to be is productive, like all I need to be is a rational human being. No, those aren't true. You're there to feel something. That's why you're in the relationship. So you have to wake up that part of your brain that is capable of feeling those feelings because that's why you're there. So just to, I don't know if I'm answering your question, but yeah, I was, I'm, I'm going to see if I can if I can kind of gleam uh, what you're trying to say. So the importance of body language presence and all of that oh, sort of right. comes from the so it, like as a guy, right? If I'm looking for an emotional connection, um, really what I'm looking for is presence. Really, what I'm looking for is someone to listen, someone to to make me feel understood. Right. And these aren't things that are necessarily communicated. Is that what you're trying to say? Okay. Let me say this in a really concrete way. I think I, I think I can totally answer this question. So what, what we sometimes do is we try and analyze when the analytical part of the brain isn't actually the part of the brain we should be using right now. So for example, uh, I'll give a couple of examples. One example is um, you're, you're at your house with your girlfriend you know she wants you to do the dishes. And you're like, why won't she just tell me, verbally tell me what she wants? Why won't she just tell me to do, to do the dishes? And what I say to the guy in that situation is, brother, if you know she wants you to do the dishes, then she communicated. So that's the first thing is for him to realize that he's aware of a lot more than he, than he realizes. And I say, you want that spidey sense. You actually want that ability to sense things that you don't know where they, how you know. And the next piece is, oh, I knew she wanted it because there was this and this and this and this nonverbal signal. And I say, even that, like, if you're in your analytical brain trying to identify those nonverbal cues, you're not in the part of your brain that that you need to be in in order to have the thing you're there to have. So I say, 
the, the part of you that's asking those questions, the part of you that's trying to turn it into a formula or an, or an, uh, an algorithm or just some even instruction manual, set that, turn that part of your brain off for a second and just be aware of what you're feeling and, and allow it to be that you may know some things that you don't know how you know, don't try and analyze how you know what you know, just have it be that you have some spidey sense. And what you'll discover is that spidey sense is super accurate. Like once I get guys to stop trying to turn it into a formula and actually let their intuition be intuition, just stay intuition without trying to reverse engineer it back into some formula, right? Just allow yourself to actually be intuitive. I don't know how I know. I just have this feeling. You all of a sudden he has this kind of ESP spidey sense that's super accurate and that is better than the instruction manual he thought that he wanted. Does that you, answer your question? It does because it sounds like I'm trying to turn a formula or an intuitive yeah. side of the body into a formula because yeah. my, my analytical side is the one asking the question right now. So let me yeah. ask you a deeper concept on that because that makes a lot of sense to me. Intuition. How yeah. does one develop intuition? Um, because I mean, that's, yes, it is. A lot of people are born with it, but some people seem to be in tune with their intuition more than others. So how does one, one begin to trust their intuition and two begin to actually listen to it and guide it to make sound decisions? Um, so I, I find this more with guys than I do with women, but, you know, it works both ways. And what I found is that we all have it. It's like a built-in skill. It's just that some of us were trained not to listen to it. We were trained not to use it. We were trained not to trust it. And we just came to this place where we just don't even believe we have it, but we do. So it's actually exactly the things you, you mentioned. You, you have to listen to the little whisper. You have to have the courage to trust it and act on it. You have to let yourself be wrong and be corrected by the universe or by your partner. And little by little, that skill gets honed and polished and calibrated and, and it gets ever more accurate until you know things about her that she didn't know about herself right like it's it's a slow process but it starts with the things you mentioned you 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 listen however quiet that that whisper is you trust it enough to 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 give it some credence you and then you test it so so you essentially develop the courage to test mm -hmm. uh, and the courage to fail yeah how does one um quickly develop the courage to fail that goes back to not being socially accepted um, or feeling like somebody might not want you or in that regard. So in your own words, yep. you have to remember that courage is not fearlessness. Fearlessness me fearlessness is the people who uh, like the skyscraper window washers that don't feel any fear. They can do what they do because they just aren't scared of heights. But for most of us, what we're talking about is not fearlessness. Like you, you can't wait until you're not scared. You have to get into a different relationship with your fear 
and be willing to be scared and act in that state while you're scared. Mm. I didn't start having success with women after I got, after I lost my fear of women. I was willing to have the, the like fear is this voice in your head saying something's going to go wrong. So it's not making that voice is still there, right? Like when I get on a podcast, I still am nervous, <laughs> but it's a matter of what I did do was I said, I hear you voice. You're not uh, the voice that I'm going to listen to. That's going to determine my actions. Uh, this other voice uh, that is the voice of all the good things that can happen. I have this other voice of taking a chance. I have this other voice of what I feel like I'm thinking about kissing her. I wonder if she's thinking about kissing me. Uh, you know, like Let me ask you something on this note of fear. Do you think the more you face your fears that the voice gets quieter, quieter, or does the voice get smarter? It's that's a that's a phenomenally great and nuanced question, and I think both are true. I think. You learn, I, I don't think the voice, I don't think the irrational voice goes away. I just think you get perspective on how true it is. Mm. And it, dimish, it diminishes in its loudness in your head. Like, I, I hear that you, that you're, I hear a voice that you're scared that ABC is going to happen. Let's test that theory. And after two or three or five or seven times of like a track record of some successes and some failures, I now have a body of information that is a better guide for me than this voice of fear. Makes a lot of sense. So it's not that fear necessarily gets smarter. You may just be better at communicating with your fear. Yeah. Essentially, essentially, that's, that's, that's the way that, that you view the world. Um, yeah, I think those fears run very deep and they're going to be vestigial. I think yes. there are still things you can't shake your fist at a strong emotion and say, you're not being rational. Go away. Yeah. That's not going to happen. The people who struggle with anger still after years have a little flare up in their head of an anger that they know is irrational. They know it isn't accurate. It's a deeply held thing. They just get perspective on it. So it diminishes and they have a, another set of criteria. It doesn't get more rational. Yeah. That makes a lot more sense. And the reason yeah. I ask is the reason I asked that question is because, so I just got done giving a, a keynote presentation in front of a lot of people. And once I got over that fear, you know, now I'm, I'm doing a, a comedy standup. Um, to me, I justify that I can do this, even though it scares me still, but I feel like there's a part of me that understands the dynamic of the situation I'm putting myself into. And so it's not that the fear isn't there. I just feel more comfortable moving forward anyways. And I don't know if that's because I experienced something similar or it's because I'm getting better at just communicating with fear in general. 
So that leads me to my next question, which is, do you think that fear is something that sort of like, the, or an understanding of fear consistently piles on top of one another? So there's just one giant book of fear that you have, or like a set of experiences, or do you think that fear is categorized based on where you are? So like, there's a fear with relationships, there's a fear with heights, there's a fear with public speaking. Do you think that those are all intertwined or do you think that tackling fears with public speaking also allows you to tackle fears with relationships or tackling fears with heights also allows you to tackle fears uh, in another aspect of your life? Well, what you're talking about is the different triggers that bring about the response. And the response is the same. It's, it's the fear response is a fear response. So you can identify these are the things that trigger that response in me. Um, for me, in my 20s, it was, it was women, right? These days, you know, and I, I, I was teaching for a while, so I don't have uh, my, my, I have tackled my fear of being on stage and talking to a lot of people. Like I've had that fear and I've tackled it by being on stage. So, uh, as you get good at, it's really your relationship to your own fear. So as you get better at confronting a fear, feeling the fear and taking action in the face of the fear and having success, you know, or maybe failure, but having success after that, it's really your relationship to your fear. And as you get better at one, you know, these other triggers also are not going to knock you out. Yeah, no, brilliantly said. And uh, something I've experienced in my life and I imagine in yours as well. Yeah. Um, and for me, I have to keep looking for the next big thing that scares me. That's <laughs> now what I noticed. Th this is my intellectual brain doing its best job of like fighting. Right. So what I noticed was my when I was the most scared getting on stage, those were my most magical, compelling, gal galvanizing, powerful moments of being on stage and just knocking it out of the park. So over time, I developed a positive association with that butterfly is not in my stomach. Like I would feel it and I, would, I at first I would be like, <gasps> you know, and then I'd be like, oh, this is going to be a good one because look how I'm feeling, you know. It's kind of so funny. I changed my relationship to to my to my own fear. Oh, this the fear is the the same emotion that creates fear also creates excitement. Yeah, you know, some people call it fear, some people call it butterflies. Um, yep. You know, they're, they're, it's it's your story that you wrap around your fear. But I think that is something that's practiced. I think that's mm -hmm. something that happens over time. I still remember the first cold call I ever did. Um, that was like one of the scariest things I had ever done. But when I did it afterwards man, did I feel good. And right. I totally resonate with you when you said that, you know, when you knock one out, you kind of just need bigger and bigger ones. It's almost like a drug, but it's a healthy drug. Um, mm -hmm. in my opinion, because you're getting a, a deeper understanding of emotional awareness, a deeper understanding of who you are 
and a deeper understanding. And honestly, you're building up self-esteem and all three of those components build up to your own ability to communicate and live a fulfilling life. Um, Ken, you are brilliant, man. I love, I love just the way your mind works when you're breaking down emotional awareness, self-awareness, self-esteem, and emotional intelligence. I just love how you've categorized everything to feed into one giant model of uh, experiencing life. Uh, It's fascinating to me. So kudos. Thank you. Thank you. You're very welcome, man. Um, so I, uh, I want to know how we can, we can support you. So tell me, tell me a little bit more about your, your project, um, that, that you've got coming out and how audience members can reach out to you, ask for help. Um, you know, we're a community, we we like to help each other out. So, uh, um, tell me, man. So, so the primary thing I've been doing up till now is just one-on-one coaching with couples. It's my favorite thing to do. Just like you, if you're, if you're in a relationship and you want an expert eye on it to say, here's how it can be, you know, 10 times better, then literally just email me, Ken at KenBlackman.com. And then, um, oh, something I have coming up, it's not quite ready for prime time, but if you want to be one of the early people who gets in on this on the ground floor and gets like extra support as I bring this to the world, I'm going to be doing a program for couples, like an online program for couples where I work with groups of couples and I take them through a process of upgrading and up-leveling their relationship. If you want, if you want in on that, then visit my website at gourmetlovelife.com, gourmetlovelife.com. Perfect. Thank you so much, Ken. This sounds super interesting. And, uh, uh, I may, uh, I may take a look at the, uh, the early adopter, um, uh, I'm always trying to level up different parts of my life. But um, Ken, man, I learned a lot and I feel very light actually after this conversation. I don't know why, whenever, whenever the conversations go into the realms of fear um, and just like talking about emotions, I guess I just feel a lot better that I have emotions. Yeah. Because I think a lot of times I judge my own emotions. Um, so yeah, thank you for... Uh, <laughs> That's probably another conversation, another question. Why do we judge our... Actually, I'm going to ask you that right now. Why do you think we judge our emotions? Because we've been trained that emotions are intrinsically bad. Like we've been trained, especially... Well, no, both men and women, actually. We've been trained that our emotions are bad. They're dangerous. They're not to be trusted. And what I find is they're super valuable. They tell you something that, that that you need to know. They're healthy. Uh, their emotions, having feelings is the reason why we get into intimate relationships. So, but we just need to learn how to be healthy with them. Uh, I'm going to squeeze in one little thing. May I? Okay. So when I'm working with couples and let's say they're super passionate, passionate human beings, meaning they feel really intensely, like they have a great love life. They fight like cats and dogs, you know, and I, they, I don't come to them and say, you need to get rid of your emotions. I teach them if they fight, I might teach them to fight like MMA fighters, which means be passionate, fight, learn to fight clean, you know, go all the way till you get to a conclusion, uh, embrace each other afterwards and really mean it. And the other thing about MMA fighters is they're not out. They actually don't want to injure each other. They're, they're not out to break each other's bones. So that gives people permission to be passionate, to even grapple with stuff, 
you know, and do it in a healthy way that actually gets them closer and gets them to the other side and has them, you know, have the full range of experiences that they're there to have in the first place. I love that so much. That's such a phenomenally beautiful way to describe a healthy way of processing fights. Um, super awesome, Ken. Uh, so we got a couple minutes left and I want to ask you a final question that we ask all of our guests. Um, so in the midst of all the relationships you've seen, all the relationships you've personally experienced and everywhere you've sort of gone and come back and now stand here, how do you stay grounded and how do you mm. see the best relationships stay grounded? Yeah, great question. <laughs> I My answer is probably going to be different from most of the other people you talk to. So uh, because of how my life has gone, even from childhood, I was a grounded human being. I've always been a grounded human being. People who interact with me tell me I'm naturally grounded. So I that is the part that's always come easy for me. And what I've had to get good at, like a skill I had to learn, was how to be vibrant and passionate and, and crazy and off the wall. Being grounded for me is my home base. And I have to learn how to like leave home base, go to crazy because I can always come back to being fully grounded and, and chill and like, you know, like that. So kind of a, kind of a, kind of a funny answer, but that's what comes to mind. Okay. Thank you for inadvertently calling me crazy. Um, I'm just kidding. kidding. Big hugs, Ken. You're, you're, you're awesome, man. Um, no, I, I, I learned so much, uh, gosh, like, especially that, that last bit about the MMA, I'm going to have to actually sit down and think about that. Cause that's a, such a, an awesome way to look at, uh, anything really <laughs> learn how to fight clean. Uh, you actually walk away a better human being. Yeah, um, yeah. And uh, you don't hurt the other person in the process. So, mm-hmm. yeah, Ken, thank you so much for being here. Um, I can't wait to see how the the next like chapter unfolds for you, man. This is going to be exciting. Um, but everybody, that is a wrap for this week's episode of the Stay Grounded podcast. I'm your host Raj. This is your friend Ken, and from us, stay grounded. We'll chat with you soon. Thanks for joining us today on this episode of Stay Grounded. I hope you found this interview helpful as you create your own ways to live an extraordinary life. For more resources and support, please visit www.rajjana.com forward slash stay grounded to join the official Stay Grounded Facebook group, a place where aspiring life enthusiasts can connect and ignite passion for life together. My hope is that the positivity, content, resources, and support in this group will resonate with you on a deeper level. That what you hear in our podcast, read in our thoughtful posts, or learn in our courses will empower you to live with intention, uncover true purpose, and challenge the internal dialogues that stop you from being who you really want to be in your life. Again, thanks so much for joining us. Stay grounded.